Alrighty. Well, good, good uh, afternoon, evening. I guess it's evening. We're going to go ahead and get started. Um, what I'd like to do is begin with um, reading one of these prayers from the book Fount of Heaven, which, as I've read before, they're prayers from the early church. This one was written by a man named Gregory of Nyssa, who lived in the 4th century, late 4th century. And um, Gregory was uh, one of three men known as the Cappadocian Fathers and uh, was a, a stalwart defender of uh, the doctrine of the Trinity and the doctrine of Christ. This, uh, this is entitled, You Freed Us from the Fear of Death. You, O Lord, have freed us from the fear of death. You have made the end of this life the beginning, of, beginning to us of true life. For a season, you rest our bodies in sleep and awaken them again at the last trumpet call. You give our earth, which you fashioned with your hands, to the earth to keep in safety. One day you will take again what you have given, transfiguring with immortality and grace our mortal and unpleasant remains. You have saved us from the curse and from sin, having become both for our sakes. You broke the head of the dragon that had seized us in his jaws, in the yawning gulf of disobedience. You have shown us the way of resurrection, having broken the gates of hell. And you brought to nothing the one who had the power of death, the devil. You have given a sign to those who fear you, the cross, to destroy the adversary and save our lives. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we... Thank you for this great and merciful work that you have worked for our sakes and for us through your Son whom you sent to be the propitiation for our sins. Father, we pray that as we come to your word tonight to consider the person and the work of our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray that you would give us light and wisdom and understanding, that you would work in our hearts to increase our faith, to make us to trust more firmly in your word and in your goodness and grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me ask you to turn with me to John chapter 1, where we'll uh, take our launching point today. And uh, as we are in John's gospel and uh, taking uh, several, uh, several studies in John's gospel as we consider the person and work of Christ, our subject properly speaking, is Christology. And um, as I've said before, to speak of Christology is to speak about, is to answer questions like, who is Jesus? What do we say about him? And what did he come to accomplish for our sake? And one of the ways that we've been structuring our study is to consider the testimony of various um, persons, various uh, uh, groups, um, as we find it in John's Gospel. And last week when we were looking at this subject, we looked at John the Baptist and his testimony and considered why uh, we can count John's testimony as credible, why it's trustworthy, why he is commended to us as a prophet whom we can believe, and also uh, one who rightly and truly testified uh, concerning um, the person of Christ. Uh, and this week, we're going to take up that same theme, but turning from John, we're going to look a little bit uh, more closely at Moses and the testimony of Moses, and not only Moses, but the prophets along with him. So we'll take our starting point from the prologue, which we've, we've looked at in past weeks, and um, I just want to always 
take our starting point here because I, I think it helps us to see that what John does in the first 18 verses of this gospel is to lay out the themes and the ideas that he's going to develop um, in, a, in a broader, uh, clearer way throughout the rest of the gospel. But we'll start uh, this evening with John 1, verse 14 through 18. John writes, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because He was before me. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. As we think about this, these um, verses, and uh, particularly verses 14 and verses 16 through 18, we, we looked a, a good deal at verse 15 last week. I want to th- uh, introduce this as um, a discussion about um, one grace that replaces another grace. You see that phrase there in the middle of this section where... Um, where John writes, from his fullness we have all received a grace upon grace, could uh, and probably properly is rendered, according to D.A. Carson, I think he's right, as a grace to replace a grace. That preposition thereupon, it's a difficult one to to make sense of. It normally means against or in the place of, and and yet uh, it's, it's hard to make sense of what exactly is meant because we don't normally associate the law with grace. But you do see in verse 17 that that verse 16 is explained. Uh, There is a ground for that statement that we have received from the person of Jesus Christ, from the Son who was sent, from his fullness, we have all received a grace upon grace or grace to replace a grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. It seems there what John is saying is that the law is a grace. The law was a grace that was given by God, and the mediator through whom God gave his law was Moses. But what Jesus brought is something better, something um, that replaces that first grace. And that's what we're going to see tonight as we look at John's gospel. We're going to see uh, several of the ways in which Jesus, uh, from himself, um, reveals who God is in a fuller way. You think about the law it did uh, reveal something about God. It revealed something about His holy nature, His perfect nature, and certainly of His gracious and loving nature, that God is the God of steadfast love and faithfulness. Those two words, um, uh, steadfast love translating one word in Hebrew, those two words, steadfast love and faithfulness, certainly speak to um, God's love for His people, and his faithfulness to keep his promises. And we can find that rooted back in the law that was delivered through Moses. We think particularly of Exodus chapters 32 through 34, when Israel made the golden calf after uh, Moses went up on Mount Sinai. And after that event, Moses interceded for the people. He prayed that God would not destroy them. And God, uh, God didn't destroy them. God answered Moses' prayer. And then Moses asked again, Lord, show me your glory. God said, I'll make all my goodness pass before you, but you cannot see my face, for no man can see my face and live. And then 
God does, uh, he hides Moses in the cleft of the rock and he passes by. And as he passes by, he says of himself, the Lord, saying his covenant name, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Abounding in, we could render that if we were to use these English terms taken from the Greek, is grace and truth. He's the God who abounds in grace and truth. And that surely is revealed to God's people in the law. But in a fuller, in a greater way, in greater measure, it's revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. You see all these elements from the law. You go back to verse 14. You see uh, the idea that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And that word dwelt is to pitch his tent, to, 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 you could say to tabernacle among us. The idea that the word, that Jesus Christ uh, is, is, um, is like that ancient tabernacle where God's glory dwelt in the midst of his people. Hear the word. It's the word who dwells among God's people. It's the word through whom we see his glory. You have that Old Testament idea, that, that idea from the law taken up in a fuller sense, this fuller sense of revelation in the word. And so you can see that there's a correspondence, is what I'm suggesting, between the law and what happens in Christ. And yet there's a uh, there's an increase, there's a, um, there's a greater revelation, a greater glory in the sending of a son. And that's, of course, then articulated in verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God who's at the Father's side. He has made him known. You could say he has explained him or he has uh, expounded him. He has uh, instructed us so that we might know, that, uh, know God whom we cannot see. So this, is, this lays the groundwork, the foundation for what John will unfold in this gospel. And then what I want to do the rest of our time together is just look briefly at a few different passages where we see this idea um, developed whereby, um, whereby Moses is presented as a witness, one who testifies concerning Christ, concerning his person, but especially concerning his work, what Christ came to accomplish, the nature of his work on our behalf. And here, when we use that um, that language of, of speaking of Moses, there is a sense in which this is just a stand-in for speaking of the law that was delivered through Moses. Of course, Moses is the witness who received that law and delivered it to the people of Israel. And so we can say Moses bore witness to Christ. But how do we know what his testimony is? Well, it's by looking to the law. And again, when we say the law, I'm not simply saying just looking at Exodus you know, 20 and the Ten Commandments or looking at particular <coughs> commandments but really the law encompassing all of God's revelation that he delivered through Moses, going through Genesis 1, through Deuteronomy, uh, through the end of Deuteronomy. So let's look then at this narrative. Last week we looked a little bit at the, at the narrative that opens John's gospel, and, and we are kind of going back and forth from one passage to another as we explore themes rather than following the, the chronology of John's gospel. So I hope uh, that doesn't get too confusing. But I want to pick up, uh, after Jesus calls his first disciples, I'll summarize briefly verse 35 through 42, and then just look really at 43 to 50 uh, to start with. In verse 35 is really, we, last week when we began looking at John, we looked from verse 19 through around 35 or 36, and there's this kind of like um, sense of handing off a baton in that, in that moment where John says in verse 35 and 36, uh, Behold the Lamb of God, 
and two of his disciples hear it, and they say, all right, we're going to go follow him now. Something better is here. They leave John, and they follow Jesus. And uh, we find that this is Andrew, and um, he's Simon Peter's brother. He goes and finds Simon Peter. He says to him in verse 41, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. And they bring Simon to Jesus, and Jesus renames Simon as um, Peter. So that's the this kind of summary of the initial call of, of um, some of the disciples. What happens next then in verse 43 is we're going to see the call of Philip and Nathanael. So follow along with me in 43 to 50 in chapter 1. The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. <coughs> Excuse me. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. And Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, there's a pattern in this passage that we're going to see in some of our other passages. Not because all the elements occur in the exact same order, but a pattern in that we see certain elements that are going to recur in other passages. Let me identify some of those to you. First, we see a very explicit statement that Jesus is the Christ of whom Moses and the prophets spoke. We're also going to see in connection with that a typological connection that shows how Moses or some of the prophets, typically Moses, spoke about the Christ. Now, a tip typological connection, let me explain what I mean by that. A typological connection is the idea that um, uh, a real historical uh, institution or person or event in some way corresponds with Christ. You could have typological connections with the church too, but here we're looking at Christ. So you look at things in the Old Testament and you see that there is some kind of analogy. But it's not an analogy that renders the Old Testament thing some kind of metaphor. No, that's a real historical element whereby God, the author of history, has, has in his providence ordained that thing, that, that event or that person or that, that uh, institution so that it will in some way prefigure Christ, that it'll, 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 there'll be a common uh, characteristic that unites these two so that it has this kind of predictive quality whereby it must be fulfilled by what we would call the anti-type. Not, not an anti-type like it's against it, not like matter, anti-matter, but an anti-type meaning the fulfillment of the type. Type, uh, th this word, it, it sounds a little weird. It, it, it's the idea, it, this will give a good image to it, um, of of, of taking a, a forge or taking some kind of um, model and pressing it into clay or metal and leaving the imprint of that, that model 
on the metal or on the clay, right? So if you have a stamp at home, if you like to, to, to do stamps, take the stamp, you put it in some ink, you put it on the paper, and you leave the picture of that stamp on that paper. That's the idea of a type, right? Impress the type onto the, um, you know, in, in, uh, these patterns along the way, and then they come to their fulfillment, and you see, ah, Jesus is the one who brings to completion that type. We already saw an example of that in chapter 1, verse 14. Jesus is the anti-type that brings to fulfillment the tabernacle, right? The tabernacle is the place where God's glory dwells in the midst of his people, Israel. And here comes the word made flesh who pitched his tent, who dwelt among us. And he brings to fulfillment that expectation of God dwelling in the midst of his people by becoming the fulfillment of that type. So there's this clear and explicit way in which Christ is stated to be uh, the one about whom Moses spoke, and then there's also, along with that, some kind of typological connection. The second part of this pattern um, is there's a discussion about Jesus' origins, where he, where he comes from, and the bearings of this upon his messianic identity. Right? And the third is that uh, individuals are going to be evaluated as Israelites, meaning uh, within their uh, their status within the nation of Israel, within their status in the Jewish people, they're going to be evaluated either uh, positively or negatively. Some are honest, some will lack understanding, some will act hypocritically. We'll see that kind of thing recur in the patterns that follow. So having seen those three basic elements then, we can look at this text and we can, we can identify them here. First, when Philip... Um, finds Nathanael, he says to him in verse 45, we found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So there's this, there's this expectation that Moses and the prophets spoke about a coming Christ, a coming one. We've already seen him mentioned as the Christ or the Messiah. And there's this expectation now, that, uh, or there's this recognition that Jesus of Nazareth is him. But you see the question about his origins then arises. Nathaniel has a question. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? It's like saying, um, it's like the, pre uh, the, the governor of West Virginia saying, I'm going to run for president. A lot of people would scratch their head and say, would, would wonder, do you really think that someone from West Virginia is going to win the presidency in this, in this nation? Nothing wrong with West Virginia. I have nothing against that, the state of West Virginia. Just saying that there's probably going to be, you know, the, it's, it's a smaller state with a lower population that has stereotypical perceptions about it where people in the bigger states are not likely to vote for that person. We tend to think of um, presidential candidates coming from big states. Maybe not always, but you, see, you get the point. Uh, it's, it's a place that's generally not thought of as, um, as a prominent a place of prominence, right? Uh, you could say a similar thing about where we live, right? Someone says, I'm going to run for Coloma, or for president. And you say, well, what do you do? I'm the mayor of Coloma. I say, okay, well, you know, maybe, uh, maybe try to become the governor of Michigan first or something like that. But um, you start to get the sense of that. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nazareth was not a big place. It wasn't really thought of as a, as a center of it all. And certainly, it wasn't a place from which you expected prophets to come, let alone um, the Christ. So Nathaniel has this question about his origins. Can, that really, can it really be that the Christ is, is um, from Nazareth? And he states it in this way where it's clear that he has a, 
something against Nazareth? Can anything good at all come out of Nazareth? So Philip just says, come and see. Come and see. So Jesus sees Nathanael coming toward him, and he says, and here's an evaluation of Nathanael as an Israelite, and it's a positive one. Behold an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Now, you know, John has, it seems like, given us bullet points of what's going on here. And um, it's hard, I think, in the 21st century for us to set, figure out what's going, through their, what's going through their minds as they're saying these things. But it does seem clear from this that Jesus has demonstrated some kind of supernatural knowledge, that he has accurately assessed and evaluated Nathaniel's character. Nathaniel perceives it and wonders how he can possibly know this. How do you know me, Nathaniel said to him. And Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Well, what, what is that? How do we, what do we make of that? Well, we would have a hard time making anything of that. There's some association with fig trees and, and people being uh, worshiping, you know, praying under the fig tree. There's some prophetic words about everyone coming under his own fig tree, under his own vine. Um, uh, what's going on? What was Nathaniel doing under the fig tree? We can't really say for sure. But Nathaniel knew, and Jesus knew, and what, Jesus demonstrating this understanding and saying, I saw you when you were under the fig tree, and I know your character, that you're an Israelite, in whom there is no deceit. That was enough for Nathaniel. It communicated very clearly to him that this is not an ordinary man. He knows what people don't just automatically know. So I think we ought to take this as an indication of Jesus demonstrating insight that he could not just have gotten by, uh, by um, you know, sneaking around and, and say, oh, I see this guy under the fig tree, and Philip telling him, filling him in, and say, go, go get him and all that. You see what I'm saying? There's some kind of supernatural insight here. But Nathaniel's assessed, he's evaluated as a, in a positive way. Um, an Israelite, indeed, in whom there is no deceit. So he responds then, he's, you know, he's convinced. Nathaniel answered him in verse 49, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. I think that there's two things going on here. First is Nathaniel probably equates these two phrases together, son of God and king of Israel, right? We've seen in other times together in 2 Samuel 7, how in the Davidic covenant, God said of the Davidic, of the coming king, I will be to him a father, and he will be to me a son. So you can see the association between the king of Israel and the son of God. Nevertheless, I think, like with John the Baptist last week, this is a case of Nathaniel speaking better than he knew, and John, as he wrote, writes it, knowing that he speaks better than he, than, than he knew at the time, and uh, the apostle John still desiring to, um, you know, to, to express this in, in, in that fuller way as he writes the gospel, as he records it. There's a confession that really is true, and maybe Nathaniel has not yet fully grasped uh, the, the entirety of all that he has confessed. But in the fullest, uh, clearest way, Jesus is indeed the Son of God. Now, this seems to surprise Jesus. Uh, at least he expresses, it, you know, uh, kind of, uh, you know, because of this, you, you know, you believe. So it says, Jesus answered him in verse 50. Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? Here's a key insight. You will see greater things than these. And he said to them, to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. 
Now, that is a strange uh, thing to say. We're naturally going to step back and say, what on earth is he talking about? So this is where we come to the typological uh, um, question, typological connection, I should say. Genesis chapter 28, you can turn there, you can listen. You're probably, many of you are probably very familiar with this text one way or another. But here in Genesis 28, set some context here. Um, Jacob has deceived his father. Jacob's brother Esau wants to kill him. And Jacob is sent to his uh, uncle Laban to go and live with him uh, for a time. And along the way, down in verse 10 of G Genesis 28, Jacob, um, Jacob stops and he's going to have a dream. So I'll pick up there. In Genesis 28:10, Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under the head under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. And he goes on to, um, to speak of his promises there. But what you have here in this vision as he sees a ladder, it's described as a ladder to us. You can imagine it like steps, most likely. I think um, if you think of those ancient Near Eastern uh, temples or, or ziggurats, you know, it's kind of like a, a series of, of square structures on top of each other in a, like a pyramidal shape, and it's going to have steps leading to the top. Think of it like that, and you've got this ladder, and it leads up to uh, there's the Lord at the top in this vision. That, that Jacob has, and he sees the angels of God descending and ascending on this staircase. So the main point here is that it's as if heaven and earth have, have suddenly been connected, and, and, and um, in that connection, in that opening of the heavens to Jacob, he is able now to see, to have this vision of the Lord, and the Lord speaks to him and communicates his promises and his blessings to him. That seems to be the text that's in the background of what Jesus says, along with a second text in Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. Here is, the, is a very famous Son of Man text. In verse 13 of Daniel 7, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So in this, Jesus seems to bring these two together, this idea that the heavens will be opened and his disciples will see angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What does that mean? It's a very, there's a lot of, there's not one um, answer that's uh, definitive. There's a lot of different, uh, well, not that many, but a couple different um, possibilities. Um, I think that the best idea is that Jesus is presenting himself as the one who takes the place in that, in that imagery of the latter. Not because uh, in this literal sense, um, Nathaniel's going to have a vision whereby Jesus is standing here and angels are going up and down on him. 
but rather, just as the latter is, so, is, is, in Jacob's vision, is the way in which God, uh, you know, which heaven and earth come together, in which heaven is revealed to earth, in which God makes himself known to Jacob, so too, Jesus is the one through whom God reveals himself to us. Do you see that there's the correspondence, there's the idea. And um, there we have something very similar to that whole tabernacle imagery. That whole idea that in the tabernacle, the glory of God dwelt, and so too, in the person of the Son of God incarnate, the glory of God dwelt bodily. Here we have again this idea of God revealing himself to man through the person of the Son, through the one who is called the Son of Man, not merely the Son of God, but this one like a Son of Man who will reign forever and ever. So we have this initial in the call of Nathaniel, to go back over the pattern, we have a claim that Jesus is the Christ, the one about whom Moses and the prophets spoke. We have a question raised by Nathaniel regarding his origins, where he, Nathaniel calls into question whether or not this claim can be true. We have an evaluation of Nathaniel, where he's evaluated positively as an Israelite. We have a typological connection that is drawn, uh, a specific way in which Moses is shown to have spoken of the coming of Christ through a typology, through a, a correspondence between one thing and another. Of course, remember that Genesis is written by Moses. So, uh, Before I look at the next thing, let me stop, let me pause and, and, and offer up for you all to have questions or comments. Um, any questions or comments on, on what's going on in the call of Nathaniel and Philip and the other disciples? Let me ask you a question just to see, just to, to see if you, um, anyone want to answer it. But um, how does this point to the work of Christ, right? We talk about the personal Christ, but how does this, what does this say about the work of Christ? About what he'll accomplish, what he'll do for us? Karen. Yeah, that's great. Reconciliation is a, is a, is a great aspect of it, is that he is... Uh, bringing, uh, he is revealing God to man. He is bringing us to God in some way. Um, yeah, that's a that that that, that broad that broad idea. That, that, that's a bit, that's a big part of it, to be sure. Now, his him as mediator, as revealer to one, the one who makes God known to us, and that's part of the mediatorial work. Is uh, it's it's not a one way street. He mediates for us to God, but he mediates for God to us as well. And this depends upon his person, something of, his, of who he is, right? This is why it's so important that we understand that Jesus is God the Son incarnate. That, we, that is to say that he's fully God and he's fully man, which qualifies him to be the one who makes God known to man and qualifies him to intercede for man to God, you see. He can intercede for us because he is, became like us, because he gave his life for us, and he can be our great high priest as one who became a man. But he's qualified to go into God's presence and do this mediatorial work because he is God himself. He is the Son of God. Well, in any case, we see the, 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 this idea of revelatory work there in chapter 1. Yes, Scott. 
Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So there's a there's a there's a there's a um, let me clear up a point of confusion. Nazarites versus uh, a Nazarene or a person from Nazareth, right? So uh, a Nazarite is a person who takes a vow. Someone like Samson, uh, someone you know, he can't drink from his from his birth. He can't. There's certain things he cannot do. But a person of Nazareth, the, 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 not necessarily a Nazarite. So in Matthew, when it says, he shall be called a Nazarene, um, I think this is just sort of a, well, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah, so there's this very negative. Mm. That's a great point. It's, it's actually, not, when you say it, too, and I think about Jesus' estimation of Nathaniel is far more charitable than Nathaniel's estimation of Jesus. What's that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's very, he's much, you know, he's gracious and, <laughs> that's right well let's look at uh, chapter 3 briefly and uh, we'll stop there there are other texts and maybe we'll pick up with them in a week um, just sticking with this theme but um, let's pick up with chapter 3 this is uh, Nicodemus is um, with Jesus we're not going to read the whole section so I'll summarize a little bit but Nicodemus as you, as you know I'm sure is a Pharisee he's a ruler of the Jews he comes by night to Jesus, and he, uh, he seems interested. It, we'll find later, it seems that Nicodemus very clearly, there's evidence that he becomes a follower of, um, of Christ. But at this stage, he's just uh, interested. He's just wondering. You know, this guy does mighty signs, and no one can do such signs if the Lord is not with him, is his estimation. So um, Jesus starts telling him some things that just blow, blow Nicodemus' mind. Namely, as he speaks about the new birth, saying that you cannot see the kingdom of God, you cannot enter it unless you're born again. And when Nicodemus doesn't understand, Jesus explains a little more fully. He's talking about being born of the spirit, not being born of the flesh. So let's pick up in, ver in verse 9 then. Nicodemus still is not getting it. So Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. But whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, 
whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. The people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So you, I presented the pattern to you. Let me ask you then to, to test your own hand at identifying elements from this pattern that we will see in some of these other texts as well. Let's start with the, um, let's start with discussions concerning Jesus' origins. Where do we see discussions concerning his, his origins and how this has a bearing upon his identity as the Christ? doing amazing stuff. What, but, and so here, Jesus is the one who's going to testify to his origins, not so much someone else saying, you know, so in the, in the uh, originally it was Nathaniel who's saying, can anything good come out of Nazareth, right? I don't, you know, I'm not quite convinced he's the Christ because he's from Nazareth, right? Here, Jesus is the one who's going to speak about where he's come from. Oh yeah, absolutely. We we you know we know that God is with you. Yeah, that's right. So that, right at the beginning, Nicodemus says, um, uh, "Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God." So there's an origin. You've come from God in some respect, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. But it's clear that Nicodemus, in his mind, has not gone quite far enough, and so Jesus is going to speak to him about heavenly things. Go ahead. That's right. Yeah, so it's one thing to say, well, you're a teacher who's come from God. So is John. John was a man who came from God, John the Baptist. Moses was a man who came from God, in a sense that he was sent by God as a prophet. But Jesus is one who's come from God in a quite different way that Nicodemus clearly hasn't grasped, despite what he said. And as Karen just read, Jesus is going to tell him, that, you know, as he speaks to him about heavenly things, namely the new birth, namely the fact that we need the Spirit of God to do his work in us to cause us to be born again if we are to see the kingdom of God. That is a, a heavenly thing that Jesus is speaking about. And um, Nicodemus isn't getting it. And, the, you know, the question has to do with testimony. When you... When anyone testifies to something, we testify concerning things that we see, have seen, things that we've understood. So who can bear credible witness to the work that God does, to who God is, to those kinds of you know, questions, those heavenly questions? Who can actually bear a credible testimony, one who's come from God? Uh, and in this case, you know, the person, one who's come from God in that fullest sense, the son of man who has ascended into heaven and descended from heaven. So there's this issue of the origins of, of the Son of Man. You'll see it again in verse 16. Here, uh, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Again in verse 17, for God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So the idea of 
Jesus being the one who is sent from God, who has come from God in that fullest sense as the Son of God um, is important. 